Frederick. I was here about probably a little over a year and a half ago. Um, you saw me. I was going to Madagascar. I went and I'm back now. Um, I want to thank you for your guys' support of me before. I'm sorry I couldn't keep in touch as well as I planned. Uh, my internet access was about once a month and my computer died after a few months. So, um, but, so I had the pleasure of serving as a um, young adult in global mission in Madagascar. Um, you can see Madagascar here. It's an island nation off the southeast coast of Africa, about 300 miles. It is, has 25 million people living there, and it's a former colony of France. Um, they speak one language, it's called Malagasy, and the country is probably best known for um, being very impoverished. It's about the 10th poorest country in the world. It's also known for being very rich in terms of biodiversity um, in the animals and the life there. So I, you can see the capital city is on Tananarivu, which is right here. And then I live down on the southeast coast near a village called Voipenu. So pretty much everyone in my area were farmers. Um, they, it was a, it's a sustenance-based agricultural um, system, so everyone, it's just what you eat is what you grow, kind of. So here, here are just a little um, pictures of Madagascar to get you a taste of some of the look of the place. So here's, um, here's one of the rainforests. Here you can see um, one of the um, lemurs, which Madagascar is so famous for. Some farmlands where you can see um, some of the ripe cropping system and some villages. And then here are some of the famous baobab trees, a little bit more of a touristy spot. So we've got some more life. Okay, I, I wanna, I'm gonna pass around this book so you can see some more pictures of stuff too. But so I got to live and work at an agricultural school that was run by the Lutheran Church. So it was pretty much just a farm. Um, so they've got different um, livestock. They've got pigs, got cows, chickens, geese, all sorts of stuff. And then they're growing lots of um, cro um, cropping stuff as well. Stuff you'd find in the garden. Some stuff that you wouldn't find around here. Like they have cassava. They've got tons of tropical fruits. Um, and essentially this place is also a school. So it's training people to become um, farmers. Um, and giving them skills. A lot of these people wouldn't otherwise be able to get those skills. And so I was in this setting and I was working kind of as a farmhand. Um, so a lot of taking care of the animals um, and just the day-to-day -day stuff, selling eggs. I also served as an English teacher. So I kept very, very busy. Uh, so here you can have a little look at some of the staff there. So this is kind of the crew. So there. There are four teachers, there are farm hands, there's an engineer, there's a carpenter, and they all work as a team to keep the farm and the school running. Um, so yeah, you can see some of the work that I've been doing. So um, here you can see me, I did a lot of work with the animals and here it's out in the tree nursery. Then I also served as an English school teacher. Okay, is it rubbing? There we go. Okay, is that better? Um, so I was uh, teaching English, so they speak the language Malagasy. 
Um, and generally, if you know a second language there, it's probably going to be French, because it's a former colony of Fran France. Um, so pretty much no one in my area spoke um, English. So there was, um, but there was also a lot of interest in people learning it, because so they could, um, speaking English could open up doors to different jobs, which could be, um, be a lot more financially viable that way. But it was, yeah, it was a lot of um, learning Malagasy, that was a thing, since people didn't speak English. It was a really um, exciting and frustrating and tough thing at times to be learning the language. So in the beginning, we had a couple weeks training all together, um, and then we were sent out to our sites. And from there, you were just there, and you had to learn it. If you wanted to eat, you had to, you had to um, be able to speak. If you wanted to communicate, you needed to do that. So it was all sorts of stuff, and it was, it was kind of funny. Like, and the place that they, the stuff that they taught me when we were in training was different from what the, the dialect in my region was. So like I was taught certain things for the official Malagasy, and then I go to my site and they're speaking differently. I'm like, I don't know what to do. So there's a lot of like, it's, it's really a process and it's like, it's really humbling to like um, be removed from like the comfort um, of your native tongue and like realize how much you rely on that. And it was, it was a really, really interesting experience. Um, so Madagascar is a place of, like it's a deeply religious place. Um, so about 50% of the um, population are just following their traditional beliefs. And that, that varies kind of between where you're living and like the people surrounding you. But, it follows kind of a an deep ancestral reverence and the respect and the following of the taboos and the different laws of the ancestors. Um, another 40% of the population are Christians, um, and that's divided kind of between um, Protestant faith and um, Catholic faith. So the Protestants, um, so the church I was working with was the Fienguinana Lutherana Malagasy which is the Malagasy Lutheran Church. And that church is absolutely giant. It's a huge church. Um, it's the 10th largest church in the Lutheran World Federation. Like, if you're meeting someone on the streets, like, um, one out of 10 people is gonna belong to that church. It's giant, um, and it's very quick and like growing very fast. Um, and then another, um, about 7% of the population is um, Muslim. And that was actually was put them at higher in my region because my region was largely Sarab, um, settled by people of Arab descent. Um, so you could see the tribe in my area, they had a lot of Islamic influence in some of their taboos. Like, um, for example, so pork is an animal that is considered unclean in Islam. So the village that I lived in, it was not allowed to sell pork. The, if you sold pork, the king would get very mad at you. Um, and then there's different things like dogs are unclean in um, Islam, and so a part of the town did not allow the dogs. So you can see lots of different influences that way, but there's like good relationships with, between people, a lot of understanding. I remember, so one of my good friends, he, um, he his family is Muslim and he grew up as Muslim. He actually ended up converting to Christianity because of a girl in the Lutheran choir. So, <laughs> kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I remember once we had, I had gone over to meet his family and we were gonna, um, for a meal, and so we had brought food and eventually, like they had prepared it when we had got there. And so 
we all sit down together and then like we start eating but then I realize it's just me and my friend eating and like none of the rest are eating so I'm like hey why aren't they eating and it's just because it was Ramadan which is the month of fasting in Islam so they only will eat after sundown but they had like they've been so wonderful and they had prepared food for us this even though they weren't taking part of it in themselves so that was that was a kind of a cool moment too um, so church there looks a little different than it does here um, so this is kind of this is one of the big churches that I went to in the local village so we had a little country church that I will, that was about probably 200 meters from where I would live and I would just walk down the road to it um, and it was just just a very very simple building thatched roof um, but we did not have a pastor there was not enough pastors around um, there's just a general pastor sh shortage and part of that the um, see the FLM the church there does not ordain women so it's entirely on the men um, so there's shortages that way in general the church there is a very conservative one um, so for example you are not allowed to dance in church dancing no don't do that you're not clapping is not a thing to do instead you do jazz hands kind of to show your appreciation it was like it was a like it was weird the first time I saw it when they were just it just looked like they were waving at the speaker I'm like what's going on <laughs> but I figured it out um, it's also a dry church so they don't drink alcohol but and so it was it was, took the longest time so communion like they're clearly giving me something but it tastes like Kool-Aid so I'm like what is it that they're giving us um, it was funny I eventually I got the recipe I figured out the recipe and what they did is they took wine and they boiled it so there was no longer any alcohol and then to be on the safe side they diluted it with water and just dumped into like a bunch of sugar <laughs> and so that's that's what we had but it was even funnier like um, so there's just a general like resourcefulness of people using what they have and at one of the churches um, they had somehow gotten they were as the wine glasses they were somehow had procured shot glasses from America and they just had on it that's just said vodka slammas <laughs> and it was just like such a, a funny contrast to be like okay I don't know if you would want to be using this but you don't speak English that's fine it's funny um, also they um, there is a kind of a special role that we don't really have in this church but it's called shepherds um, so these are figures in the church where I, I don't it's hard, kind of hard to characterize but they're kind of um, kind of a step down from pastors where they will um, help lead things in church so in my church say um, we did not have a pastor in my small church um, so but we did have shepherds so these shepherds would play different roles um, for example we would have a blessing every time in service where um, every single person in the congregation would come up and they would kneel for a blessing that could take like several minutes and so this process like with all the people in there like it could take a whole hour just doing that alone um, and then some other things that they might do so the Malagasy Lutheran Church believes in demon possession so um, a kind of another thing they did they did a lot of work with that so for every service 
that we had, we'd have a casting out of the demons, because it was believed that demons would possess you. Um, and so during this time, the congregation would just be singing away, just, yeah, singing their hymns, and the shepherds would be coming around the church. And it was a very, it's like a very violent and physical experience. So they would be yelling, yelling at the demons, like, leave, get out in the name of Jesus Christ, and waving their arms, just like coming around. It's like right in your face. Um, and for people who are, um, were seen as possessed, they could get very violent reactions out of that. Um, like that's something where the person, um, they may try attacking the, the shepherd um, for fear, like the demon doesn't want to leave, and different things like that. So it's a very, that's like a side of, like I, something I hadn't seen before, and it was a really, it was a really interesting thing, and it could like, you could just get like the goosebumps on your arms, like listening to people singing all around you, and then this, this yelling. It was really kind of a surreal um, experience that way. Now in church service. Okay, so here we're pretty much, you know, in out in an hour. That doesn't work. People are, if you go 10 minutes over, people may not be happy. But in Madagascar, um, services lengths are not quite that simple. Um, so you may, like service, a typical service was probably around four hours. Um, but sometimes, like, it might be two. Sometimes it might be six. So, like, you know, you can't really plan stuff around Sunday service very well, so it's just like you kind of just need your whole day. Um, and it was, it was very interesting. Like, I, I went to church every Sunday, but I sometimes, like, couldn't always figure out, like, how is this lasting this long, even? But, like, I feel like um, it's funny. A couple of characteristics, like, general for Malagasy people is they like, they like giving long speeches. Like, they're going to they're gonna thank everything. Everything's going to be a little drawn out. And also, they like tight spaces, and I think like that's a good characterization of a little bit of what like church is like, the long speeches, and that everyone is just crammed into the pews, because a lot of the churches, there's not enough space, and so everyone's just, just right up and close, and it's, it can get so, so very hot in there, too, because um, it's a hot, humid climate, and I remember, so you'd just be sweating there. And then in the beginning, I would have, there would be like a lot of kids. I was a novelty, so like the kids would want to play with me. And so they would just like crawl all over me during church, making it even hotter. I remember there was one little boy who always liked to play with me. Like one time during the service, he was just like turning over my, like to see my underarm, and like, Hootsie Bay, which means you're very white. He's <laughs> like, okay, yeah, that's, that's right. But yeah, um, with the services, I, um, too. So, yeah, well, I, so they have a lot of different um, structural things um, that are similar to ours, but they also have some few unique things. Like one of the things that you'll see in a lot of services is they will just have auctions in the middle of the service. Like the sermon finishes and then someone grabs chicken. Who wants to buy this chicken? <laughs> and it's like this, so a lot of the farmers like bring in produce and different things as like excess that they have, and so it'll be auctioned off and the money will be given to the church. So that's a, a another fun little thing <laughs> too that was to see. And yeah, I remember. I, so my parents got to visit me 
for a couple weeks, which was great. Um, and then they, were, they sat in a church service with me. And I remember, like, I don't know, someone had been up at the pulpit talking for like 40 minutes. And then, like, eventually my mom leans over like, so is this the sermon? Like, no, this is just announcements. <laughs> and it's like, it's a tiny church. There's not that much going on. <laughs> it's just, it's so, yeah, it's, it was fun. Draining at times, but. Um, another big part of my experience was standing out so much. Um, so for the first time in my life, I was a minority. I could go weeks without seeing another person who looked anything like me. Um, and so everything I did was everyone's business. I was watched, I could do anything, and then everyone else would know about it. Um, I also got to like learn, like see a lot a bit of the weight that came with my skin color. Um, because I was, uh, was white, I was seen, automatically seen as very rich and well-to-do, um, which that is, I mean, that's an accurate like assumption um, too because most people there, it's like I, just beyond um, their material dreams is what I have. And it's such a contrast that way. Um, and that, yeah, that's something that was, it was a lot of times it was hard to see um, and this like tourists and foreigners that I may see in the area and like how little they understood that difference. Like I would hear people like complaining about like what they couldn't bring in their suitcase and like, or complimenting themselves on how well they cacked when I like, I know that those, the context of that suitcase that they brought for their two week holiday is more than like a lot of these people just plain have. Um, so that it's a, um, a, lot of, a lot of hard stuff that way. Um, and I also, um, there's kind of a weighty issue where a lot of people there um, to have lighter colored skin is to be more attractive. Um, which is kind of an ugly thing. So you have a lot of tension that way. Um, to be white is you kind of, you garner an automatic respect, which is not something that should, your skin color should be garnering, um, especially considering there's been a lot of colonialistic abuse and kind of Western well-to-do countries coming in and using Madagascar and Malagasy people in a way that is not necessarily beneficial to them. Yeah, and I was also like automatic, like it was, it was an interesting thing. Like I was kind of always assumed weak and I was, I was kind of in a game of trying to figure out if that was like because I was a woman or if it was because I was white or what combination of that. But it was like, it was a constant game of like, I would like list something that wasn't that heavy and be like, oh, you're very strong. I'm like, I think you're just like, I don't even know. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was, it was, and it was also, but there is um, some truth to the like weak, prone to sickness idea. Because if you're thinking about um, these people, these white people, foreigners are coming in from a country which they do not have the same bacterial um, bacteria and animals, and they have like Madagascar doesn't have as much health code. So a lot of people coming in there are going to be really prone to sickness and likely to get sick there too. So there's also that there's there's basis for that absolutely. So when I, like, when I was there, I would, a lot of people, I, I was often asked, like, why, why would I ever choose to come here? Like, the ideas of what I was leaving behind, um, like, I was leaving behind my, my language, um, 
everyday like modern conveniences, my family, my friends, everything comfortable, and I was coming here. Um, and so that was that could be kind of a hard thing, like why why would you do that? Like your life is made already. Um, but it was hard to like tell like what this experience was giving back to me, and it was like it was because it was far more than what I was losing. And one of those things was the community that I found there. So there, there aren't. I mean, you don't have a lot of material wealth. Is what you have is the people around you, and the re relationships and the bonds that are um, formed in the absence of the material things that can get in the way um, a lot of times in our lives. Um, it's, it's absolutely it's like beautiful and how like willing they are to take you in and to be a part of all those things. Like incredible hospitality. They're so welcoming, like overly so. Like I literally had to hide for them sometimes because like, okay, I don't need to be included in everything. <laughs> But it, it was absolutely wonderful to be able to be a part of that. Uh, now here, you can see some of the other um, Yakin volunteers. So there are eight of us, but we were spread throughout the island. Some of us were kind of had closer um, site placements than others. Um, but about two to three times, yeah, three times, um, we got together during the year to, uh, for a retreat where we'd go, we'd kind of process um, things and see where, kind of hear each other's stories and see where everyone was at because there is such, like even within the country there is such diversity in the stories. Like I was working at an agricultural school, another woman was working as a nurse in a hospital, others were serving as English teachers like constantly, so it was really neat to um, hear some of those stories um, and see like the different things that we learned just at where we were at in the work we are doing. So those were important times. Um, I'm going to wrap up with just a story um, that I think kind of shows what my experience was about. So this, this is my best friend, Roger. Now Roger is like 36 years old and he's up to here on me. And he, he was one of the farmhands at Fiona and I. We worked together all the time, and we were, we were best buds. Um, and what, okay, so there had been a hurricane that had recently hit Madagascar, um, and there had been damage and stuff. So in my village, we're right near the coast, and we're on a river, so we're prone to flooding. So a couple days after, um, Roger and I, we biked out to the village that was six miles away to kind of, like, survey the like see the damage and see how much flooding there was. And we were biking along the path um, and eventually we got to a puddle that was too deep and too, too wide to be able to bike through, which is, you know, so you just stop and you, you walk through it, not a big deal. Um, but Roger had recently, his toenail had gotten torn off when it, from a pig door, um, so his foot was hurt and it was bandaged, and so he was not allowed to get that wet for healing reasons. Um, so I took, I took our bikes and I, like, I walked through it and took them to the other side. And then I came back. Um, and by that time there was another group of people coming towards us just on their way to the market. And like I told you a little bit about how white people are um, seen, they're kind of like the hoity-toity, like respectable, like they're not going to get dirty. Um, and I come back to Roger. And Roger jumps on my back for a piggyback ride, and I walk through the puddle with him on my back. And the other group, 
of people, they just start roaring with laughter. Like, and it's such like a joyous, like, just laughter. And I, like, Mally gets to laugh a lot, but I hadn't heard a laugh like this. And I think this is kind of like what my experience was about. It was going out there and it was about doing what I can. In this case, it was, it was a piggyback ride. Like, that's not a huge thing, but the ability and like the difference that can make in people's lives, um, how we see each other, just breaking down stereotypes, just getting to know each other. And that's, that's really what I think um, this experience was all about. And I had a wonderful year, come back um, changed and with different eyes. And I, I thank you guys for all your support. Um, yeah, do you guys have any questions for me? No? <laughs> What? Yep, I was there for a year. Okay, well, thank you very much.